Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is wonderful to be able to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, I do want to make sure that uh, if you didn't get a chance to get a bulletin, that if you want one, you can go do that now. It's got some space for you to write, draw pictures, do whatever you need to do to help process and engage with what we're talking about this morning. Uh, also in there is a connection card, which we use, as, a, as you heard, as a way to communicate and different ways you might be responding to what we're, we're talking about today. So uh, feel free uh, during this time to, do, to go and get that if you need to. Uh, I do also want to welcome uh, anyone who is listening on the live stream. Thanks for engaging with us, and uh, also anyone who's listening later on to the podcast. Uh, thank you uh, for taking time to do that. Um, yeah, let's pray. Dear God, I give you great thanks for this day and for your presence uh, in our lives. Yet I pray uh, this morning that you would draw us together. Lord, there is a, a way you speak to us that is unique when we are together. And so I pray that there would be work you would be doing in us as a gathered group uh, that would impact the world uh, and that we would be willing to participate uh, in that with you. So please, Holy Spirit, come and move uh, in this place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week three of a sermon series we've entitled, You've Heard It Said, where we're continuing an exploration of this sermon that Jesus gave that we call the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a crazy sermon. It calls out an invitation to all people to know and receive the blessing of God, the life-changing goodness of God, the love of God, and at the same time, it challenges the ideas and beliefs of all those same people. To realize that whatever they believe right now, and for us, whatever we believe right now, Jesus is probably wanting to push us, invite us, kind of depending on how we're receiving what he's saying, uh, into something deeper, into something bigger, taking it to another level. And in doing so, he's inviting all people to be part of God's reconciliatory work of being salt and light in the world, shining light into all spaces and places and situations with the intent of drawing out the true image of God-bearing nature of all humanity and restoring relationship between people and God. Now, anytime you go after commonly held beliefs or philosophies, things that you're going to challenge, you're going to be stirring the pot, you're going to be rocking the boat, you're going to make people uncomfortable, that's exactly what Jesus has been doing throughout this whole sermon. And so if you've been feeling uncomfortable by some of the challenges that have been presented in this sermon, then you're in just the right spot. So if that's where you're at, good job. Um, and if you're not, you're okay too. Just keep listening. You'll get there. Um, <laughs> because he's upending everything. At that time, there are common philosophies and beliefs he's going after, but those apply to us. So much so that still 2,000 years later, we're still kind of reeling from these words. And one of the main things that Jesus is going after in this Sermon on the Mount, in this section that we're specifically looking at, where he starts these little subsections with the phrase, uh, you've heard it said, or it has been written, or it has been said, he's uh, going against a certain set of rules and guidelines, and this idea that just simply maintaining those is what's going to win you God's favor. That if you do those, God's going to somehow have to kind of owe you a good life. 
It's going to restore your relationship with God. And I want you to make sure that we're clear on this, though, that I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't think that those rules are important. In fact, he says that he's come to fulfill those rules, to, to show and to live them out fully and invite people into that. And he challenges the people listening that their righteousness has to actually exceed the ones who are currently seen as the experts in following those rules. What Jesus is revealing is that typically even the experts have kind of stopped short. They've missed the intent of those rules, and so their ways of expressing their obedience to those rules aren't really hitting the mark. And so they and many of us are not living out fully the life that God has for us, this life that we've been referring to as flourishing, this life of uh, what many people refer to as shalom. And so, we find that we might be in a spot where we feel like, oh, yeah, I kind of figured that uh, if I just did this thing, that God would be okay with me. That I can defend sort of my righteousness in a bad moment. Uh, But it seems that Jesus is taking many of these to a level where we realize we're actually not doing what we thought we were. And today's topic is no different. And this morning, we're going to be talking about marriage and divorce. And before we go on, I want to say a couple of things that I hope are going to be helpful as we go into this. First of all, it is not my intent this morning for anyone to feel shame over what they've experienced in either making a decision to divorce or being part of a family where divorce has impacted you. And I know that for many of us, just hearing that we're talking about marriage and divorce brings up lots of big, strong feelings, many that are very hard to sit with. And so I want you all to hear that this is not meant in any way, shape, or form to bring up shame. And that I want to honor all of us and everyone here who has made courageous decisions and steps in the midst of and in the wake of a divorce. There's nothing easy about this, and so I want to be sure that we tread courageously while also being aware of the deep hurt and the big challenges that are present uh, in, in these situations. And so... Um, If you're in that space, I want you to hear that both Jesus and we as a community stand uh, together and support one another. Uh, But I do want to also say, if I do say something that brings these feelings up for you, will you please come and tell me? Um, Because it may be that I didn't articulate something well. It may be that I was wrong about something, and I really need to know that. But if, if you don't ever tell me, then I won't ever know. And there's no way for us to actually engage in both in a healthy way, uh, move forward and grow. So if I do say something that stirs something in you like, like that, please, please, please uh, come and tell me. And then we can go uh, from there. Having said that, um, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, a short passage where Jesus addresses uh, some perspectives on divorce and then some other passages that... He's kind of building off of. The first one is going to be in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along there, or it'll be up on the screen where you can follow along also. Uh, So here we go, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery adultery. I also want to say I'm not going to answer every question that comes up out of this today. So 
if you have other questions, write them down. We can, we can talk about that. But whenever we dig into the Bible, we have to be really sure that we do the good work of understanding what we call the context or the setting that everything happens in. Because if we don't, we may miss some nuances. We may not understand a certain cultural situation that Jesus might be speaking directly to. And so I want to take a few minutes to do that. I also want to say that I'm going to ask you to trust me on some things because lots of times we like to show you all our work and put up all the Greek words and that stuff. We're going to talk about a couple of those, but there's a lot that I'm just going to ask you to trust my work on. And again, if you have questions, you can press me on that at some other time. But having said that, Jesus starts with this statement about a certificate. And this comes from Deuteronomy 24.14 where Moses says the following, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be, a detest- that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord, and uh, do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord uh, the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now, this, uh, this statement uh, puts forth the, the perspective that God allows divorce um, and that divorce happens. But there are some parameters. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so the first one is there's this thing about a certificate. Uh, that somehow a certificate has to be involved. And what that was doing was sort of saying, uh, if you have a certificate, then, then it's justified, right? If I give you this piece of paper, you walk away with that, uh, and then you can show it to someone, and uh, they will say, oh, well, you were divorced for a justifiable reason, and so, uh, so that kind of makes it uh, a clean slate in some ways. Um, but what was happening... Um, uh, in the time of Jesus is that there's a certain word in here, this word for indecent or indecency uh, that, that is used that was having, uh, it, was, it was experiencing sort of inf- an inflation in its definition, right? The, the, the definition was getting really wide and started to be attached to some things that it wasn't really supposed to because the Hebrew word there really means to, to lay bare and to expose, but it has heavy sexual overtones to it. And so most likely what Moses is saying is if if the husband uh, finds or something is exposed uh, with uh, his wife that has of a sexual nature uh, that, that was not in line with the covenant they had made with one another, then there's permission for that certificate to be given. But over time, it began again to widen its meaning. And by the time we get to Jesus, and I have to tell you, I read through some actual divorce certificates from this time, and they were insane. Uh, at least in my mind, um, things about basically just lost their interest in their wife or didn't like the way they went about their day. And during this time, women were typically uh, in charge of running the household, and that included cooking. And so one divorce certificate specifically said, you are receiving this divorce certificate because I do not like the way you cook. Okay? Wow. So we have men giving these divorce certificates out to women for really whatever reason they might find. And it's because of this word that was was brought in, indecency started to mean, well, I just don't like that about you. And so Jesus goes after this and says, okay, so anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate. 
right? We, we see that. Uh, another side note, you may notice again that Jesus is using gender-specific pronouns here um, and, and using specifically talking to men. Uh, sometimes the way the Bible's translated, that doesn't always fit, but this context, it really does. It doesn't mean that women weren't allowed to divorce men in Jesus' time. They, they were. I read divorce certificates from women at this time too. But Jesus is specifically pulling off this verse that Moses was talking about, which in Moses' case, he was saying, this is men, this is the role that you have in this, you're the one that's going to be in charge of this. And, uh, but Jesus is, is taking a misinterpretation of that and directing it towards the men of his time, but the application that we can draw will apply to all of us if we kind of run with this. So I just want you to know that I'm aware of that and that this is actually specifically addressed towards the men of this time, although it has broader uh, application to us now. So, uh, it says anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate, and uh, a lot of the people listening would have been like, okay, we get that, but we've also heard the things you're saying, and so now we're ready for you to sort of take that and twist it and make it something that makes us feel like we don't know what's going on, um, and so he does, and he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so Jesus says there's one reason why divorce is okay. Uh, that's sexual immorality. Now, the word here for sexual immorality is porneia, uh, and it sounds a lot like porn and pornography. Uh, and in the New Testament, it's used to describe a lot of different illicit sexual acts, often describing incest, but not limited to that. The other thing... So it's got kind of widespread usage. But the other thing that is, I think, even more interesting about this word is that it's metaphorically used to describe uh, different outward expressions of idolatry, right? And so it's a word that I think when we look at it that way can help us understand what Jesus is saying because I think it's not simply the physical act of some sexual immorality, but it has deeply to do with the heart. It's happening in the heart. Just as when we worship an idol, a person gives themselves to that idol and there is an outward expression. There's rites and rituals and all that kind of stuff and practices, but those are motivated by an inner reality. And as we know from the previous weeks of hearing Jesus, it's not just if you physically actually kill someone that you're a murderer. It's if you call them a fool. It's if you judge them as less in your heart, you've committed murder. It's not just the physical act of adultery, he says, but it's if you've lusted after someone, even in your heart or something, then you are also an adulterer. And so Jesus is getting at this level of things where it's not just about the physical, but there's something else going on, something uh, in the heart. And I think he's doing this because at that time, and in our culture, I think we don't do a very good job of addressing the heart, the internal stuff. We're very concerned with getting the act to stop, which is really important. But we often don't do the work to help each other step into change, to help each other step into transformation so that we actually can respond and live differently and flourish in new life. But Jesus isn't done yet. And he says that anyone who divorces a woman for any other reason than sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And we get really nervous because he's throwing that word around a lot. 
But when Jesus says, makes, you make a woman the victim of adultery, what he's saying is that if you divorce a woman for any other reason than sexual immorality, you're committing the act of adultery. And the woman you divorce is the victim of that. This is Jesus telling these men to stop using women in the context of marriage to get what they want from them and dispose of them when they become bored with them. Or because you don't like their food. Right? That, that you've entered into a covenant and at some level it is on you to work that out with God in a way that pleases God. And divorcing this woman with a certificate or not is not it. In fact, you could have a thousand certificates. And if it's not for the reasons that God talked about, then it doesn't matter. Because in God's eyes, it's not a divorce. And so that's how it starts to get in this realm of, and if you remarry, because God's talking, Jesus is talking about the context of this situation, that if you remarry someone who's been divorced for these illegitimate reasons, then you are entering into some trouble areas. Now the problem for us with all of this is how we look at things and how Jesus looks at things. One of the things we often do is we look at the text and try to justify what we have done or what we're thinking about doing or, or to feel better about our life so we can either point out somebody else who's doing something we think is wrong and say, well, at least I'm not doing that. Right? I remember when uh, my daughters were younger and lots of times whenever one of them was having a really bad moment, the other one kind of stands off to the side and is like, that's not me. Like, look at me, I'm pretty good, right? <laughs> and we do that a lot of times. We find these spots in Scripture, and we like to point out our culture has a problem with this, and da-da-da-da-da. It helps us feel good if we're not doing that. So many people look at this text to try to justify or find valid reasons for divorce, but that's not all what this passage is about. And Stanley Harwas says this about it. He says, if we come to this text looking for reasons to justify divorce, we miss the whole point. What this text does is to redefine marriage and to anchor it in the new community of Jesus, a community that will make possible both the single life and fidelity. Because the other contextual aspect I think we need to be aware of here that Jesus is getting at is that this cultural understanding that uh, I think we experience some today too is that it's better to be married. And for women in this time, in Jesus' time, if you're divorced, there's a downward spiral that's attached to you in lots of ways, economically, socially, culturally. And sometimes your only way out of that was to remarry and have kids. But one of the subtexts that Jesus is trying to reveal here, I believe, is the value and dignity of not being married. That the church community is a place for married and single people to live and share and grow together, to care for one another in a way that removes the downward spiral in this case. And it's not saying that one is better or one is worse, that one is better and so it's sort of helping the other one and one is worse, so it needs to receive that because it's less. But it's saying both have ways that they can serve and they actually do it best when everyone's being together. And so one of the things that Jesus is freeing people from here is that you have to remarry. And Jesus' statement here that anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, again, is in the context we've already talked about. And so it seems that he's remaining within the context of women who have been divorced for reasons that God does not permit divorce to occur in. A couple more clarifications as we continue to kind of unravel this. That, um, 
Although Jesus says that sexual immorality is the only reason that God would give permission for divorce, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, is talking about uh, marriage, and he said that if there's a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. That seems to kind of open it up a little differently because what if that person leaves because they didn't like your cooking? Right? And, then, and so what is, how does that change things? And so it, it seems that even though Jesus says this, that Paul adds this exception. And, and, and I don't want you to hear me saying, so yeah, let's just let anyone go back to like, yeah, because I don't like your cooking and all that. But that it's so much more uh, complex than we think it is. And in, in, the, you know, in the 25 minutes, half hour, ideally, that I have here, um, we're just not going to be able to unpack it all. So again, it would seem that it's not just sexual immorality that Jesus has in mind. Um, but I think we're getting stuck in this a little bit because we keep looking at it in the wrong way and from the perspective of what's allowable in terms of divorce. Because I think the bottom line is that God doesn't ever want divorce to happen. I don't believe it's ever God's intention for divorce to happen. That God intends for those who enter into a covenant to stay in that covenant. And at times, that may mean adjusting who we are to meet the, the words of the promises we make to the people we make those promises with. But God is also a loving and merciful God. And so God sees it in our imperfection. We're not going to make perfect decisions and we're going to make mistakes. And I also believe that in terms of our standing with God, I want us to know that none of those mistakes disqualifies us from God's love and redemption with God. But some of those mistakes may require changes in our relationships and in the way we conduct ourselves. And some of those mistakes give justifiable reasons in God's eyes for someone to initiate and follow through on a divorce. And I believe, again, it's never as easy as the few sentences I just read. Because we often hear stories about uh, a couple, and somewhere along the way, one of them betrays the other person, and it could be for the very reasons we're talking about, for sexual, sexually immoral reasons. Um, and the, the other person is, I'm forgiving, and I'm staying with it. Uh, and, and over some period of time, they, they, they somehow reconcile. It could be different. It could be one person just treating the other person really badly, and, and the person stays in there and is committed, and in over 25, 30 years sometimes, the other person repents and has this huge change of heart and, and, and becomes very kind. And, but then we hear about people who do that in the same way, and they're, they're both utterly destroyed. We hear stories where people do get divorced, and sometimes remarry, and sometimes stay single, and, and, and all people are really happy and flourishing. And we are sometimes where the divorce doesn't change anything, really, and people are still trapped in some of the things they're trapped in. The thing with those stories is, if we go just by those stories, then we're allowing humanity's expression of covenant to be our model. But I think we need to allow God's understanding of covenant to be our model. What does God say, and how does God enter into a covenant relationship because a covenant is more than a promise or a contract, and especially in today's culture. And I'm not saying anything specifically to you, Earl Thomas, but I want people to know that, like, pro athletes are a great example, that um, they enter into contracts, and then 
it's always in a process of renegotiation, which is one thing, but, but there was a time when the contract was the contract until the contract was fulfilled, and renegotiation wasn't an option because you sign a contract. Um, but now contracts and promises don't seem to hold the same uh, kind of strength that they used to, and so I think it's important for us to look to a different source for our understanding of covenant. Because God enters into covenants with humanity, and at times he reaffirms those covenants. Sometimes he enters into them with other people who maybe hadn't uh, been aware that humanity had been invited into this covenant. But God keeps the covenants he enters into. And so I think one of the challenges with this passage is that it exposed for these uh, Israelite men of the time and lots of other people in the culture and for some of us today, a low view of the covenantal nature of both God and marriage. That we don't set God's example as the model to follow in terms of our covenant relationship with our spouses and so often we do so because of this lower view we have of covenant. So they're easier to leave. But listen how Jesus talks about this just later on in the same uh, gospel in Matthew 19, uh, 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then did they ask? Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, Well, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the one who can accept this should accept it. I do find uh, some joy in Jesus' response to the Pharisees of saying, well, I guess some people can't accept this word. It's kind of his way of saying, maybe you should re-examine, right, and see if, can you accept this word? Um, but the point is that Jesus calls the Pharisees on this because they're asking the question, one, from the perspective of trying to trap him, trying to expose Jesus. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? What's lawful in this case? And Jesus gives them a lesson in covenant. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, in the beginning... Way back, God created them. And there's something in, within that that expresses something of God's covenantal nature in this relationship. And that w because of that, one, I want you to make sure we hear that, one of the ways that humans can bear the image of God is to marry. Oh, wait. Hang on. Jesus doesn't say marry or marriage in there. 
Must be a word we've attached to it. Anyways, Jesus goes beyond that and says that the two will be united. The two will become one flesh. And although this certainly has to do with physical intimacy, it is so much more than that. And we often get stuck on that, that this passage is all about physical intimacy. But I don't believe that physical intimacy is the entirety of what Jesus is talking about in this passage. I think Jesus is speaking of this covenant that I believe is expressed and represented in physical intimacy that really is much more than that. Is it emotional, spiritual, psychological, intellectual, and physical, and much more? It's on every level of relationship. And it is covenant because it is to be with, to be for, and to move with unto God. So I think when we move into areas where covenant is broken, we're moving into realms where we start to think about breaking that and entering into areas like divorce. When we sense the person we entered into a covenant is no longer with us, for us, or moving with us unto God, or we feel like we're not able to do that for the other, that's when we begin to have these ideas about getting out. And the challenge I want us to lean into today, and the question I want to ask is that why is that our first response often? That when the covenant is broken, our response is to look away instead of to try to renew. I think there are two reasons. One, to restore covenant and renew is really, really hard and can be really hurtful. It's often much easier, at least in the short term, to walk away and not deal with it. For many of us, though, I think it's because God is not central in our marriage. Both the people in the marriage might believe in God, but where is God's actual place in your relationship together? I'm not saying you have to pray together every day, but it can be pretty awesome. But is God present in your marriage at all? Do you talk with your spouse about God? Do you talk to your spouse about your relationship with God? You ask questions about their relationship with God, and then, amazing, listen. Do you pray for your spouse in other ways than, Lord, please them, make them stop doing insert annoying behavior? Right? Do you pray for their relationship with God? Do you pray for their flourishing and for their wholeness? Do you find ways to give your spouse space to enter in and spend time with God? Do you give them encouragement to do that? Do you allow yourself to be informed and shaped by your spouse's relationship with God? Or is that just for them? Maybe there's some cause they're passionate about. Why? Why? Do you know why they're passionate about that? Maybe. Ask them. Does that connect with God somehow? And that's my challenge in all this. Um, Yeah, I'm going to ask the worship team and the prayer team to come up. And as they do, I want to close with with a couple of things. I don't have um, connection card questions. I'd rather just have a minute to just sit and think because this topic is heavy Um, and can have lots of challenges with it, and and we've only just begun to to get at it. Um, But if you've uh, been through a divorce, you've thought about divorce, ask questions about divorce, um, again, I want you to hear that that, uh, lots of people may consider that somehow less or damaging, um, uh, but really you were aware that something needed to change, um, and, and you moved on that. Uh, in the best way you could. And so if you've been through that, please don't hear anything I said today again as shaming or saying somehow that you were outside the will 
of God. I don't know your situation. Uh, and if you want to talk more, we can do that. Um, uh, but if you're in a space where you're thinking about divorce, I would simply ask that in your process of discovering broken covenant, is it possible to even imagine a reality where reconciliation is possible, where, where regaining covenant and, and remaining in it is possible? Jesus says at one point that all it takes to move a mountain is a mustard seed of faith. And, and, and one person uh, kind of rephrased that and, and was talking to a person who said, I just don't know if I love God anymore. And, and this person said, is there any part of you, any single molecule of you that is turned toward God? And I said, I think so. And they're like, then you can, you can move a mountain. So is there any part of you, if you're feeling really distant from your spouse and you're starting to have those questions, is there any part of you that still responds in that way where you are for them, you are with them, and moving together unto God? And move in that. And see, investigate if that covenant can be restored. And so again, I don't have connection card questions, but the team's going to play for a moment. I'm going to pray right before that. Um, You'll have some time to sit. You can write your own questions, comments, whatever uh, you want on there uh, about what you're engaging with and dealing with today. Um, but I also want to encourage you that uh, we have people up here to pray for you, um, whether it's about the topic we've talked about today or not, um, but they're here for you also. So let's, let's pray, uh, and then we can, we can move on with some, with some songs. Um, Jesus, I give you thanks for these words that challenge and invite um, and, and, and stir. Uh, but I'm also uh, I'm uneasy with you um, in, in some of this. Um, and I know you're aware of the, the challenge and the hurt that often is associated with this topic. And so I'm relying on you and trusting you to move and heal uh, as, as, you, uh, as you will. Um, but I really, uh, I pray we would rediscover, um, God, your covenantal nature that exists within who you are, even as the Trinity, your commitment to one another, um, and how that is, is sent out to us. And, and I pray that even as we sit for a moment and, and dwell on some things, that that would be very present in, in this space. Um, and God, I do pray that you would help us, just as we sang earlier, to, to have courage and to be brave um, in whatever decisions we need to make. That we would have courage and be brave in boundaries we might need to set. That we would have courage and be brave in, in stepping away if that is necessary. And that we would have courage and be brave to step back into covenant if that is possible. Um, and, and, and I pray that we would be able to imagine uh, things that are bigger, um, bigger than we can just see uh, in our plain moments. Um, yeah, so help us, God, to, to live in and live out um, your love in, in our marriages. Um, yeah, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.